Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 104, Moving Out. Presuming we do develop the species-level maturity and responsibility to maintain our home planet until we have the technological capability to move out to other planets, then Mars and perhaps a cloud city on Venus look like our best options within the Goldilocks zone of the solar system. But first, there's some questions to answer. For example, Dear Cheap Astronomy, is solar or nuclear better for a future Mars base? A common theme on cheap astronomy with regards to space exploration is that just because we can do it doesn't mean we will do it. Since any billion dollar investment is going to require some kind of return on investment, whether that be an actual monetary return or political capital or whatever. And even then, if there's a major risk of people dying and or the mission failing, it probably won't get off the ground in the first place. So, for a while now, we've been running with the line that establishing a base on Mars would be problematic if it's going to rely on solar panels for electrical power generation, since Mars has somewhat unpredictable months-long dust storms. So, on balance, the best option is to go nuclear. But a recent 2022 study compared two scenarios with a six-person crewed mission landing on Mars, establishing a base, staying for 480 days, and then returning to Earth. The mission would draw on in-situ resources, primarily water and CO2, for the purposes of staying alive, generating power, and making large volumes of methane to fuel the journey home. The solar versus nuclear comparison is of course just a mathematically model comparison where energy requirements are calculated and then the different energy options capacity to deliver on those energy requirements are compared. The study concluded with the headline finding that the solar power option would be better at Mars's equatorial regions but if you move the base towards the poles, then the nuclear option starts looking better. But now, let's go beyond the headlines. For example, what does better actually mean? After all, both options are scalable. If you want more power from solar, you just add more panels. And if you want more power from nuclear, you can get a bigger reactor or more fuel throughput. So what the study actually means by better is the ratio of the payload mass you have to fly to Mars and the subsequent energy output that's achievable from that mass. As you'd expect, solar panels are fairly low mass, but you have to include an energy storage solution. Otherwise, there'd be no power at night, not to mention during the dust storms. It turns out that the best energy storage solution, again based on payload mass, is a water electrolysis solution, where you divert some of your daytime solar-generated power to electrolyzing water into hydrogen and oxygen, 
which can later be recombined back into water just using traditional fuel cell technologies which generates electricity, heat and more water. Of course, if you go nuclear, that will run 24-7, so you don't need to be so reliant on energy storage. The 2022 study works off specs of NASA's Killer Power Nuclear Fusion Reactor, pleasingly named the Killer Power Reactor using Stirling Technology, or Krusty. So if you flew Krusty to Mars, it would be outcompeted by the solar option, if the base was established near the equator, but it wins out for a base established near the poles. This overall finding suggests there's actually not that much difference between the two options, and let's remember the mission is dependent on in-situ resource utilisation, notably water, where most of the known water sources on Mars are polar, so in that respect, Krusty looks pretty good. But let's take a deep breath here. If you did land on Mars, and your only way off again was to generate a large volume of methane from in-situ resources, then one of the many things you would want some certainty about is a reliable energy supply. So really, the best solution is to establish some redundancy. So why not fly both the solar and the nuclear systems so if one breaks down, you just switch to the other. It is a lot more mass to fly, but you're less likely to die, so what the heck? Once you do have a reliable energy source, with redundancy options, all you then have to do is to manufacture rocket fuel from local resources to get home again. And what could possibly go wrong with that? This is the middle bit. As usual, there are a lot of great ideas floating around, but a genuine end-to-end -end solution still eludes us. An end-to-end -end solution would involve us first landing on Mars and then establishing the needed infrastructure over a sequence of return journeys before we eventually send the colonists on a one-way trip to stay there. But anyway, here's another great idea that's floating around. Dear Cheap Astronomy, can we look forward to a cloud city on Venus? Having a cloud city on Venus is at least as likely as having a surface city on Mars, both of which are probably less likely than having a surface city on the Moon or a solar-orbiting space station city at the Earth-Sun Lagrange points 4 or 5. The attraction of having a cloud city on Venus is that at 50 kilometres above the surface, there's one Earth atmosphere of pressure and enough atmosphere above you to protect you from most harmful space radiation while also letting through much the same solar flux as you would get on Earth. The super-rotation of Venus's upper atmosphere means a floating structure at 50 kilometres altitude would circle the planet every four Earth days, so you would get days and nights of about 48 hours long, which, with sufficient battery storage, would give you an ample amount of solar power and good temperature regulation. Of course, there are risks associated with being at altitude rather than being on solid ground, but in Venus's case, those risks aren't all that bad. 
A balloon full of breathable air will float in Venus's dense CO2 atmosphere just like a hydrogen balloon floats in Earth's atmosphere. So rather than living in a gondola that's hanging from a balloon, the gondola itself can be the balloon, and the high external pressure outside means there's no risk of explosive decompression if the hull's punctured. There will just be a slow leak that you'll have ample time to fix. And if your gondola has a balcony, you could walk outside without a pressure suit. All you'd really need is an oxygen mask, although the possibility of contact with traces of sulfuric acid that are in Venus's atmosphere might make you think twice. Being 50 kilometres above the surface of a planet that has about 90% of Earth's surface gravity means the gravity on the deck of your Venus gondola would be nearly 90% of Earth's surface gravity too. After all, you're not orbiting the planet in freefall, you're just floating buoyant within Venus's gravity-bound atmosphere. And while you could fall over your balcony railing and die, that could happen to you on Earth too. So there are a lot of Earth-friendly aspects to Venus's cloud-top environment with respect to temperature, pressure, and gravity. By comparison, Mars has less to offer. It's colder, the atmosphere is so thin, it lets all the nasty space radiation through, but is still able to whip up global dust storms, which could render your solar panels useless. On the plus side, with Mars, you can live on the planet's surface and be able to walk around, even if it is in a pressure suit, which could have some psychological benefits. And being on the surface, maybe there's some mining to be done if there is anything in Mars's rocks that's worth mining. And what Mars, and even the Moon has a little bit of, and what Venus completely lacks, is water. For example, with the Moon, we think there are exploitable pockets of water in some shadowed areas near the poles, though it's unlikely we are talking huge volumes of water that would be sufficient to maintain a large colony. Mars has a lot more water than the Moon does, again mainly at the poles, along with some patchy underground deposits elsewhere, so a self-sustaining long-term colony might be theoretically possible, if water could be shipped from the poles to the colony. This can't be a straightforward matter of pipes and pumps like we do on Earth, since the water at the source would be ice, and even if you melted it there, it would just freeze en route, unless you kept all the pipes permanently warmed. So it's probably easier to have some kind of railway that trucks solid ice blocks, which could then be thawed back at the base. Of course, this isn't a podcast about Mars colonisation options. We're just making the point that it remains to be seen if full reliance on endemic Martian water is an economically viable option. So, given that any extraterrestrial colony in the near future is going to be reliant on supplies being shipped in, the case for a cloud city on Venus looks relatively good. The key pluses being Venus's proximity to Earth and the generous solar radiation available for power generation. Nonetheless, the Moon wins out on the basis of proximity to Earth, and a Moon base could have continuous solar power generation if it's situated near the poles, which is the current plan. But after the Moon, Venus might be a real option 
So a Venus cloud city is certainly an idea worth floating. This is the end bit. So there you go. We have put down bits of the jigsaw puzzle that make it sound sort of possible to colonise our neighbouring planets, but there's still a lot of complexity there which we're yet to grapple with. And the first step in any direction is to ensure it remains economically viable to keep making those next steps into space while our home planet goes to pot. But that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question, or you just want to take a pot shot at our future speculations, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll take it all on board. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlick, Cheap Astronomy.